Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Well, we are fascinated with pirates. Whether it's Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney, the Assassin's Creed Black Flag video game, or Robert Louis Stevenson's novel Treasure Island, it seems we've always loved the age of piracy. But my guest today says the pirates we see in the movies don't perfectly line up with the real pirates who sailed the high seas in the 17th and 18th centuries. In this episode, I talk with historian Eric J. Dolan, whose most recent book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates, profiles many of the pirates you know, and some you've likely never heard of. Eric and I discuss how integral piracy was to colonial America, what pirate life was really like, and how the real money wasn't in the Caribbean, but all the way across the globe in the Indian Ocean. Eric then tells us about the explosion of piracy in the New World following the end of the War of Spanish Succession in 1715, and the ways we started immortalizing pirates in the pop culture even when there were still pirates sailing in the Caribbean. After the show is over, check out the show notes at www.cmtuhistory.com for extras and resources. Now on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. Them stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Good. Uh, So you are a uh, historian uh, out of Massachusetts. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how did you uh, come upon this topic of American piracy? Yeah, I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts. That's where my wife's from. We sort of settled back here. I have a long and strange career. If you ever looked at my resume, you'd think that I couldn't keep a, a job. I went to school for <laughs> quite, a, quite a long while. I have an undergraduate from Brown, a master's from Yale, and a PhD from MIT, all in environmental policy and biology. At one time, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau, and another time, I wanted to be a professor. But by the time I got out of school... Uh, neither of those paths were of interest to me anymore. So I spent many years working for the government and nonprofit environmental groups uh, um, doing a variety of things, everything from global climate change to fisheries management. But I always loved writing, and I w- started writing in college, but I didn't start getting into books until the late uh, ni- sort of the 1990s. And uh, one day I told my wife I wanted to be a writer full time, and she sort of laughed. And then she said, "Well, you you uh, you have to put away some money to do that." So <laughs> I I worked for a number of years, and I basically put away a year's worth of my salary. And my wife in 2007 turned to me one night and said, "You know, you can leave your job." And uh, I, I did. It was very scary, but I've been a full time writer since then, and I've written. 13 books, and this book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, is sort of like a lot of my books, uh, all of which are on topics that I don't know a lot about before I start working on them because I want to remain engaged for the 18 months to two years it takes me to write and research one of these books. So, uh, but, but this one was a little bit different. Usually, I just come up with the idea, I share it with my agent and try to get my publisher interested. But for this book, I 
decided to pitch the idea to my two teenage kids, Harry and Lily. And I had a couple of ideas, but when I told them about the possibility of writing about pirates, their eyes lit up and they said, that's it, Dad. You have to write about pirates. And I got really excited because neither of my kids up to that point had read any of my books. So I figured this, <laughs> I figured this was my big chance to have them read one of my books. And, and I'm proud to report that my daughter, who uh, now has just recently graduated college, has actually read the book and she enjoyed it. But my son, who's a freshman in college, has only agreed to read it perhaps by the time that he is – 50 years old, so maybe I'll well, get one, to it later. <laughs> one out of two isn't bad. No, you're right. Uh, so that's how the, the book came about. Uh, it was a lot of fun uh, writing it. I was just blown away over and over again by the strong connections uh, between piracy and American history, colonial history in particular. It just was a, a fascinating book for me to research, and it was a lot of fun writing it. Well, I, I think I had a similar uh, reaction to your kids when I saw your book on the shelf. I saw, ooh, pirates. And uh, there's <laughs> something about pirates that just sparks the kid in us, you know? It's a fun topic. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it, the romantic aspects and a lot of the, the books. And, of course, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and all these mm -hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean movies. There's just a never-ending well of fascination for pirates. And every September 19th, there's international talk like a pirate day. And people talk like a pirate then. And then on Halloween, they dress up as pirates. Just It's, it's absolutely amazing, especially when you really consider the true history of these pirates. They weren't very admirable fellows. There, there were a couple of women, uh, but they weren't admirable fellows that you would want to emulate. And I think the Hollywood imagery of pirates has taken over the true story. But I have no problem with people loving pirates, dressing up as pirates and watching those movies. I love them too. But if you want to get the real history of golden age pirates, I wouldn't rely on Hollywood or popular representations of them. So you're saying I'm not getting a true history lesson when I play the Assassin's Creed game. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you're having fun. <laughs> Very true. All right, so let's dive into the, the real history of the pirates. Um, and your book, like you said, takes a kind of a unique uh, track on the pirates, uh, their connection to colonial America, which uh, I found uh, just fascinating because you see a lot of a lot of names that pop up in a history, American history textbook that you never would dream of were in connection to pirates. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but you start off explaining that there's a, there's a distinction in the pirate world. You have pirates and you have privateers. And, and your book is about pi uh, pirates. So can you That's explain right. that distinction for us? Sure. Uh, pirates are generally uh, are, are the enemies of all mankind. They're the people who are flying under no flag other than their own, and they're willing to plunder any ship of any nationality that they come upon for personal gain. They're essentially robbers, like highwaymen on land. They're the highwaymen of the seas. They're out there. Uh, robbing. It's just like going into a bank, but in this case, the bank and the money hopefully is on board another ship. Privateers, which is often called licensed piracy because the skills are exactly the same, but privateers are a little bit different. There's actually a legal distinction. During times of war, uh, countries were able to essentially give a letter of mark 
or a privateering license to an armed merchant ship that gave them legal permission to go out and attack the enemy ships, the 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 the, the ships that that country or the that country was fighting. You can go out and attack those ships. If you capture them, you bring them back to port. There's an adjudication process, and the people who own that privateering vessel get a cut of the profits. Uh, but it is legal. As soon as the war is over and the peace is signed, privateering licenses evaporate. And what you can imagine happening actually did happen. A lot of privateers who made a boatload of money during the war attacking enemy ships and taking what they could, when the war ends and they're suddenly thrown out of their line of work, uh, many of them take the skills that they have accumulated and simply become pirates. So the distinction is that letter of mark, is that official government sanction to go out and attack other ships. Pirates, the real pirates, don't have any government sanction. They're operating under their own laws and uh, are therefore considered the enemies of all mankind. That... um that's just crazy to think because that's a uh, it's kind of a dirty way to fight a war. Um, you know, you might be a, a, a merchant ship, and you know any potential civilian from another civilian ship from another country could have a privateering license to attack you, right? Yes, I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. Is there you know is all fair in love and war, as they say? Uh, I don't have that much of a problem with privateering in the sense that. Why is it any different than a formal uh, naval ship of England, for example, going out and attacking a French ship during time of war? It's essentially a uh, – it's like a navy for hire during times of war. The only distinction is – And we still is, do this. You know, a lot of countries still yeah. do this. Yeah, but the only distinction is – and this is getting more into the weeds – is a lot of privateers, they didn't have any code of conduct. They weren't formal uh, you know, combatants. Uh, sometimes they would attack ships that I'm sure a naval vessel or a military ship would not go out and attack. So there are distinctions, but uh, these wars were bloody affairs. And there are many ways to look at them as being horrific, and privateering perhaps is just uh, one of many. All right, so some interesting philosophical ground there. Um, piracy uh, in, in your book is, is very old. It's been a part of the New World since the, the very beginning of European colonization. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, North America's first pirate? North America's first pirate or the first pirate that I talk about that affected the American colonies? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, the uh, first pirate to, uh, to affect the colonies. Yeah, the, the first one that we know about, and I'm pretty sure it's the first one as well, is a guy named Dixie Bull. Now, you have to keep in mind that during the 1620s and 1630s, a lot of people that came over to the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony were here to trade beaver furs. That was a very lucrative uh, form of endeavor, and it was a way in which many of the colonists were able to pay off their debts to the merchant adventurers who sent them over here in the first place. Dixie Bull came from England in the early 1630s. He decided to become a pelt trader or beaver pelt trader, and he had collected about $500 worth of beaver pelts, which were on his little shallop or boat, 
and they were plundered or taken by the French. So Dixie Bull got really upset. He rounded up a bunch of other men, got another boat, went off in search of the people who had robbed him of his goods. He didn't have any luck finding the French uh, perpetrators. So he decided, he and his men decided, to just become pirates. And they attacked a number of English ships along the colonial coast. They caused an uproar in the colonies. Governor John Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was greatly disturbed by this and actually sent out one of the, the first ship ever built in the colonies, the Blessing of the Bay, out to find Dixie Bull. They were unsuccessful. The Piscataqua uh, Colony up in New Hampshire also sent a force out to find Dixie Bull. They didn't find him, but he basically disappeared or melted into the mists of history. Nobody's quite sure what happened. Some people say that he was uh, attacked and killed by Indians. Other people say that he defected to the French, and others still say that he ultimately made it back to England. What actually happened, we're not sure. His dalliance with piracy was very brief, just lasted a couple of months, and was literally just a small taste of what the colonies would experience uh, many decades later. So as is the case with um, quite a few of the characters you profile in the book, there, there's a lot of mystery and, and legend surrounding these figures. Yeah, I, I try to divine the, uh, the legend from the facts. There is a lot of information about the pirates, but one of the main drawbacks about writing uh, a book on pirates is that pirates were not ones to sit down and write their memoirs. A lot of them were hanged or killed, so they didn't have an opportunity. But they came from a certain social strata that they weren't particularly literary to begin with. And so a lot of the information about pirates is not from their own hand or mouths, except for the trial transcripts, which are fascinating. And there are a number of trial transcripts where the pirates were put on trial and they had to testify or there were depositions taken. But there's other sources of information. There are diaries, there are newspaper accounts, there are accounts of people who were captured by pirates and then later escaped. So you can really develop, I think, a very good and full picture of what these pirates were doing, who they were plundering. But I would love, as an historian, to have an opportunity to sit down and have a drink with some of these pirates and ask them more about their motivations and what it was like during their usually brief uh, careers. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that would be a, a completely fascinating <laughs> experience. Um, so I imagine if you did get a chance to, to sit down and have a drink with one of these guys, you might be drinking a uh, Captain and Coke, per se, <laughs> um, from you know Captain Morgan. Um, well, Captain Morgan was, was a real person, and uh, you yep. tell his story, which is interesting. He, he became an English hero in a night. Tell us about that. Right, yeah, Henry Morgan, he started out as a buccaneer, which is basically just another term for pirate in the Caribbean in the mid-1600s, and he came over from England around 1650 or so, and this is at the time when England was uh, just trying to get a toehold in the New World. Spain had sort of enveloped much of the New World, taken over a lot of places. They were mining gold and silver in, the, in South and Central America making boatloads of money, and England wanted in on the act. So they uh, took over the island of Jamaica in 1655. But the problem was England was stretched thin, its military forces, its naval forces, and a lot of the naval forces that helped win the island went back 
to England shortly thereafter. So the governor of Jamaica was relatively uh, exposed, not just the governor, but all the, the colonists as well, because they were surrounded by Spain on all sides. There were a lot of Spanish settlements and there were the Garda Costa or the sort of the Coast Guard of uh, Spain that would attack Jamaica. And the governor of Jamaica was very concerned, wanted to get some protection. So he turned to Henry Morgan and other buccaneers and basically said, you guys can use Jamaica as your base of operations. You can go out and plunder the Spanish all you want. All that we ask in return is that when necessary, you defend us just by your presence, perhaps, or actually by fighting off any Spanish forces that might come to Jamaica. So that was the deal that he struck. Henry Morgan was one of the buccaneers that sort of came into the fold of Jamaica. And he got quite involved in local government. And then what really made his name is in 1671, he took a large force of uh, Englishmen over uh, into Central America, across Panama, and he attacked Panama City, which was a uh, local warehouse of a huge amount of gold and silver that Spain had wrested from the mines of Central and South America. So Henry Morgan goes over there. He sacks Panama. He gets a lot of treasure, not as much as he wanted because some of it escaped on ships, but he got a lot of treasure and he came back and he basically gave that treasure to the governor of Jamaica and the crown. The only problem was his attack was occurring when England and Spain were technically at peace. So this was a uh, attacking your friends. Now, England and Spain were enemies quite a lot of the time. So initially, Henry Morgan got in trouble for this. He was brought back to England. But uh, the king really liked Henry Morgan's spirit, dash, his hard-drinking nature, because the king was known as the Merry Monarch. He liked to imbibe quite a bit and they got along very well but more importantly money covers a multitude of sins and essentially what the king decided is even though that technically henry morgan had broke the peace between england and spain he brought back a huge amount of money that went into the coffers of the english government and he had to be rewarded for that and the way that he was rewarded for that is he was given a knighthood and he was sent back to jamaica to be the governor and to actually um, go out and attack pirates. So that's sort of the way that he appeased Spain a little bit. He said, okay, we're not going to hang this guy. We're going to send him back to Jamaica, and he's going to try to rein in the pirates. He didn't do a very good job at that, and he sort of died later of, of – uh, personal dissolution. He drank way too much and he got sick and, and died. But that was sort of the course of his life. And you'll see that pattern repeating itself over and over again in the history of piracy. Namely, that if you've got the money, a lot of people are willing to look the other way and accept what you're doing, even though it's technically breaking the law. So causes a major diplomatic incident and gets rewarded with a knighthood. Um, yes, <laughs> that's an amazing story. Um, but you're, you're, you mentioned something you know very interesting: uh, the importance of money uh, in all this. And it, it's worth noting that the Spanish are retrieving just tons and tons of precious metals out of the Americas, and that's 
usually the the target for these pirate raids, right? Absolutely. I mean, Spain was essentially uh, given rights, in a sense, uh, through the Treaty of Tordesillas by uh, one of the popes. Basically, Spain was given the right to uh, conquer and take over and settle any piece of land in North and South America, minus a little bit of Brazil that wasn't already occupied by a Christian nation. So Spain went to town. They went and they, they attacked the Aztecs, the Incas. They uh, sacked a whole bunch of very uh, longstanding and fascinating cultures there. But what they really were after was gold and silver. And there were these great gold and silver mines in uh, Potosi and in Central America and by the end of the 1500s, Spain was exporting huge amounts of coins that were minted at their mints in the New World and also bullion back to Spain, making Spain uh, the richest country in Europe at the time. And a lot of other countries, including England, were very jealous of Spain's financial windfall. So that they started, uh, you know, Sir, Sir Francis Drake was actually a pirate. He was technically, they called him a privateer, but one of the things he was sent over by uh, the queen to attack Spanish treasure ships that were transiting between Central America and uh, the Philippines, the so-called Manila galleons. And he came back with a boatload of money and he was given a knighthood and thanked by the queen. So, what, what happened is money becomes the pursuit. Everybody is in search of money. The Spain seemed to have control over most of it in the New World. So England and other countries, pirates from those countries, privateers from those countries, are looking for targets of opportunity. And those targets are the treasure ships that each year are transiting from South and Central America and going back to Spain. Sometimes there are little armadas of pirate ships, you know, maybe 10 or 14 ships, and they make for uh, good pickings sometimes by the pirates and the privateers. But again, it's, it's all about the money. If you can steal the money, that's great. Your monarch will likely look the other way. Well, and one thing you talk about extensively is that money, you know, not just with the monarch, but it also greases the wheels with uh, uh, ports and, and local governors. And so, you know, yeah. we might associate piracy with the Caribbean. You know, I mean, we got the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, but, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship going on between the North American colonies and piracy. What, what's going on there? Well, you have to... Consider the context. The colonies are on the edge of empire, the American colonies. They are treated very shabbily by the crown and parliament. Basically, mother, the mother country, England, looks at their colonies all over the world as being subservient to the host, which is uh, London and England. So you're supposed mm -hmm. to provide products and income that go back to the center. And that's, of course, part of the reason that the American colonists got sort of got upset with England and ultimately led to our revolution because of this kind of treatment. And this treatment started very early on in the 1600s. And one of the things that the colonists were starved of was currency, even though England often required merchants in the colonies to pay cash to get the products that they wanted to in turn sell. So there was an imbalance there. There was a 
uh, paucity of currency in the colonies. And then you had these pirates who are coming up from the Caribbean who sometimes were loaded with money and they were willing to spend it in the colonies. So the colonies often welcomed pirates with open arms because they were providing something that the colonies desperately needed. Also, the colonists, the merchants, even though there were restrictions on them selling things in the Caribbean, they often broke those restrictions and they went down and would sell things to the pirates in the Caribbean, make money, and then some of those pirates would come and settle in the colonies and bring their riches with them. But the 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 way in which this reached its apogee in the colonies had to do with these so-called Red Sea men starting in the 1690s. And these were essentially colonists who became pirates, but they were technically called – they called themselves privateers because this is during King William's War when England and France were at war. So colonial governors would give privateering licenses to – these American merchants, essentially, and that would give them permission to attack the French because England and France were at war. But the governors knew full well that those merchants had no intention of attacking the French. Instead, they were going to go around the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean and attack Mughal ships coming from transiting between the Indian subcontinent and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. And oftentimes, these ships had a lot of money on board. So for about seven or eight years, there was a whole river of American quote-unquote privateers, but they really were pirates, who left from the colonies, went into the Indian Ocean, attacked Mughal ships. Some of them brought back quite a bit of money to the colonies, and they, the reason they were really welcomed with open arms was not only because they provided currency to the colonies and often East Indian goods – they also were the sons, fathers, and brothers of the other colonists. So they melted back into the colonial economy seamlessly very often. And England hated this. They wanted the colonists to clamp down on this type of piracy. But it wasn't in the colonists' self-interest to do so. So for many years until there was a clamp down, a serious clamp down uh, on the part of the mother country, this sort of piracy went on and uh, contributed to the wealth of the colonies and helped them hang on during a particularly difficult time. I, I can't help but see some uh, parallels between, between this and kind of the ways the American colonies subverted uh, royal authority in the years leading up to the American Revolution. Yes, there, there are definitely parallels. And some people have even gone so far as to you know, say that th this piracy sort of was the seeds of the American Revolution. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but clearly the same motivation, the, the feeling of being treated rather shabbily, you know, no, no taxation without representation, the, the notion that you're being dictated to by the central government, which is not doing an awful lot to make your life easier, generates a high level of resentment in the late 1600s and certainly in the 1750s, 60s, and 70s uh, that causes the colonists to ultimately decide to break free of uh, England. You mentioned that these um, 
pseudo-privateers are headed off to the Indian Ocean. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's, you know, half a world away. But why are they going all the way over there? Well, because that's where the – sort of like that guy. I can't remember the name of the guy, but uh, a very famous bank robber was asked, why do you uh, – why do you rob banks? And he answered, that's where the money is. <laughs> so it's sort of the same for these red seamen. Uh, in the Indian Ocean, the Mughal Empire was very wealthy. And it was sort of a linchpin of the English economy because the East India Company, which was the largest uh, and, and, company. And just so listeners oh, are aware, that's, a, that's an Islamic empire in, in India, yes. correct? Yeah, it's a Muslim empire in India. And uh, – it, it was basically the East India Company, which was in England, was a huge company and provided a significant amount of the annual income for the the British government. Uh, they had a thriving trade with the Mughal Empire in, in tea and silk and cotton and all sorts of products. But the Mughal Empire also, since it was Muslim – there was something called the annual Hajj. They would go to Mecca and they would have to pray at least once a year. And so there, there was these enormous ships, sometimes could have more than a thousand pilgrims on board, would transit between India and Mecca. And these people on board would bring with them their best clothes, their jewels, and a lot of money. And then there were also traders who went back and forth that had a lot of money on board as well. So the Americans were aware of this uh, this trade going on, and they decided to exploit it. So they went, and Americans were very good sailors at the time, had very good ships. They weren't afraid of going great distances, so they sailed around the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean, and they went looking for prey, which was Mughal shipping. And they did a very good job of attacking Mughal ships. There was something on the order of 40 uh, different ships or expeditions that were performed by these Red Sea men in the 1690s. And some of them overhauled or plundered ships that had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of jewels and goods on board, hundreds of thousands of dollars sterling at the time or British pounds. So it was, it was a great way to get rich. Oftentimes these ships were not well defended. And the American pirates were often uh, heavily armed. And uh, when they came back to the colonies, they were given protection by the very governors and merchants who had invested in the, uh, the, the journey itself. Because these governors were part of the problem. These governors gave out these privateering licenses or letters of mark, which they knew were false, for a fee. Sometimes it can cost up to 300 pounds per license. And then when the pirates came back from the Red Sea, in order to blend back into the community, the governors would exact another form of tribute in effect. They would ask each pirate to give the governor, give him a hundred pounds apiece. And that was so-called protection money. It basically was a quid pro quo. You give me a hundred bucks, hundred pounds, when you come back, I won't get the sheriff to molest you. You can go about on your way, take the rest of your riches, and live your life. And that's so not very money nice. going into the colony's coffers. That's going to the governor himself. Yeah, that's going to the governor. But but the stuff that went to the colonies in the sense that if you had somebody that's worth a thousand pounds sterling in the late 1690s, which was a considerable 
fortune back then, not a fortune, but it was a lot of money, uh, that person was going to be spending it on things, you know, a house, a pro- property that are going to flow through the economy. But yes, the governors were the linchpin. And there's one governor, Benjamin Fletcher of New York, who reportedly during his relatively brief tenure got kickbacks on the order of 30000 pounds sterling, not only from pirates, but also from uh, military men and local merchants. He was a king of white-collar crime in the late 1600s, and he finally got recalled back to England, and his hand was slapped. But um, yeah, it was, it's a great business. It's a great racket. Racket, for sure. <laughs> um, so one person specifically, one of these uh, red men, uh, his name was Henry, a- uh, Henry Avery. And yep. he almost, uh, over the course of his piracy, almost managed to ignite an Islamic holy war against England. Yeah, I- I'm not sure it would be a holy war, sort of a merchant war against England. And he did ignite a small one. What happened is Henry Avery, uh, uh, he led a mutiny on a ship. Uh, and the people decided to rechristen this ship, which is a privateering vessel, and call it the Fancy. They went around into the Red Sea because they knew that there were Mughal ships to attack. He had a very good run of it, attacked a couple of ships, the most important of which was the Emperor Aurangzeb's main ship, the Ganja Sawe, which had more than a 1,000 pilgrims on board going for the annual Hajj. And Henry Avery, Avery and his men... Uh, took over the ship, and in between looting it, uh, they engaged in a vile and animalistic orgy, raping many of the women on board. In fact, a number of the women who were so mortified and horrified at what was happening, rather than have their friends and family see them defiled in such a horrific way, killed themselves by pitching, by jumping over the side of the ship or stabbing themselves. So Avery got a huge haul from the two ships that he overhauled, including the Ganja Sawe, and he ultimately got away with his money, his part of the loot, uh, and faded into the English or Irish countryside. Nobody's quite sure what happened to him. A lot of legends sprang up afterwards, but this caused a huge problem between England and the Mughal Empire, because Aurangzeb was furious at what had happened to his ships. So he essentially shut down trade between India and England for nine months, imprisoned all of the English merchants who were in India at the time, facilitating the trade. And it took a lot of negotiations between England and India before that trade reopened. And part of The reason that it reopened is that England put on trial six of Avery's men. The first trial found them innocent of piracy, but the second trial found them guilty of mutinying, and they were hanged. And that assuaged Aurangzeb a little bit, but not all that much. But essentially, he ultimately decided and England decided that their commerce was so valuable, they should reopen it. And England promised to redouble its efforts to track down pirates in the Indian Ocean. And uh, they sent a few ships there. And there was there were other flare-ups after this, including one with Captain William Kidd. But ultimately, by the end of the 17th uh, century, the end of the 1600s, uh, the Red Sea men were eliminated as a threat within the Indian Ocean. 
So England decided to at least somewhat take this seriously and clamp down on it. Yeah, um, after the after King William's War ended in 1697, basically England realized it had a serious problem. There were just too there were too many acts of piracy, especially in Indian Ocean. So it passed a new law that was a stronger anti-piracy piece of legislation that applied in the colonies instead of having a jury of your peers, which often would let pirates off when and if they had a trial. Suddenly they had it was a sort of an admiralty court procedure, which was thought to be more fair and stricter against the pirates. They sent over uh, warships to the colonies to patrol and capture pirates, and they captured a few. They hanged a bunch of pirates and made a uh, sent out a real clear message through that. And uh, all of these things combined to clamp down on this form of piracy. And by the beginning of 1702, when the War of the Spanish Succession starts, essentially piracy in the American colonies has died out completely. It would come back, roaring back at the end of the War of the Spanish Succession in 1713 or after 1713. But there was this quiet part. And that's sort of the book is broken up into, it doesn't really have two parts, but the way one way to think about it is American piracy during the golden age was uh, came in two different divisions. The first was the early piracy in the Caribbean and the connections between the colonies and the Caribbean pirates, and then the Red Sea men who went into the Indian Ocean. That was all clamped down on by about 1700, 1702. Then after the War of the Spanish Succession is completed in 1713. Piracy comes roaring back, but it's a very different type. There's no longer pirates going from the colonies to the Indian Ocean. Instead, the pirates are now attacking British ships along the American coast, and it becomes an entirely different endeavor. And this is the point at which the English government's interests and the colonial interests align. They both want to get rid of these pirates who are causing grave damage to commerce. Hey guys, thank you for listening to this episode. Talking about pirates with Eric has been a lot of fun. I'm going to take a little break from that conversation for just a couple minutes to take care of some housekeeping items. I got some thank yous to send out to some folks on Twitter. Uh, thank you to uh, the guys over at Cutting Class Podcast, um, the fellows with the Geekly Podcast, uh, Courtney and Andriel from the Spellcast Podcast, uh, Nothing Ever Happens in Canada Podcast, and uh, Haunted Happenstance you guys have been tweeting about the show a lot and thank you thank you thank you i also want to thank some of our new twitter followers uh, over the last week or two uh, jessica lewis joanna k and oh i hope i get this right henrik jornunland listening all the way from denmark hi henrik uh, a lot of people who've just started following the show over the last couple weeks and uh, i appreciate the support i'm glad you're listening uh, if you want to keep in touch on social media, I'm uh, active on Twitter and Instagram, both of which are at CMTU History. I'd love to hear from you, hear your thoughts on the show, and, and just talk to you. Uh, if you're new to the show, please subscribe. Uh, check back in every couple weeks when a new episode drops. Uh, if you've been listening for a while and you like it, uh, consider leaving a review or rating in a review on, on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast whether that's Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox. So your help in getting the word out is much appreciated. 
And then this week, we're finally rolling out some new things for Patreon patrons. Now all patrons will get a little welcome package. It'll have some CMTU bookmarks. Just a way of saying thank you for your support. Uh, Some patrons get to vote in upcoming episodes. Uh, This September is going to be a patron's pick episode. So if you'd like to weigh in on that, you can. And what I'm most excited about is the new behind-the-interview mini-episodes that are going to be available to patrons starting today. So for every episode, I'm going to dive into a topic related to what we've talked about on the podcast. I'm going to go a little deeper on on a related topic. And for this week, we're going to be looking at uh, two women pirates, the only two women pirates recorded in the so-called golden age of piracy. Uh, There have been other female pirates uh, throughout history, um, but the only two from the from the era that we that we focus on so much. So we're going to be talking about the lives of Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. Should be a lot of fun, and hopefully you enjoy it. So if you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron, head over to patreon.com forward slash CMTU history. And the last order of business for today before we get back to my conversation with Eric is I have a podcast promo for you. I think if you like listening to this show, you will definitely enjoy listening to The Cult of Domesticity. A little bit different, but in some ways the same. Uh, Cover history from all over the board. Sometimes it's history, sometimes it's true crime. Whether that's uh, the history of the Haitian Revolution, uh, Russian serial killers, uh, what life for Puritans was, was like. Uh, the host, Courtney, has a new guest on every episode, and, and they tackle a different historical topic. So listen to this promo, and then we'll get back to my conversation with Eric Dolan. Do you love true crime, history, and mysterious happenings? Every week on The Cult of Domesticity, a guest and I discuss a different historical happening, a true crime story, or whatever strikes our fancy. Join me, Courtney every Thursday to hear some fascinating tales from some fascinating people wherever you listen to podcasts. So it's this period after the uh, War of Spanish Succession that historians have called the, the golden age of piracy. And, and this so, is what we kind of choose to remember, right, in, in popular culture. I would actually, uh, well, I, the way I cut it, it's a little bit different. I, okay. I, I consider the golden age of piracy to be basically the late 1600s through about 1726. So it encompasses this period, but it also encompasses the Red Sea Men, which has to be, in my mind, part of the golden age, if you're thinking the golden age is the, the heights of piracy, because it was the most lucrative era of American piracy of all, far more lucrative than what took place after the War of the Spanish Succession. But yes, I think the distinction you're making is that most people who are listening to this and most people who know anything about pirates often focus on what happened between about 1715 and 1726. That's the era of the Pirates of the Caribbean, of the the movies that you see, and Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet and these pirates attacking ships along the American coast. That's when we have the black flag. The Jolly Roger first makes its appearance in the early 1700s, but really doesn't take off until after the war. Uh, this is when you have the pirates' articles of agreement, or the you know where they agree to divvy up the loot in a fairly equal basis. This is when you have the pirate code. So it's... Um, 
it's perhaps the more fascinating part of American pirate history because it's the one that's more familiar. I happen to think that the Red Seamen part of the story is just as fascinating. So suppose our, our, our listeners, um, you know, let's imagine they could be recruited on, on a pirate ship. Uh, in, <laughs> don't in, do in it. Any of these, don't do it. Um, well, what would their lives be like? I mean, you know, in, in a personal sense, what, what would this look like? Well, uh, consider that uh, being a mariner of any type during this era was a very tough existence. Now, let's take a pirate sloop that's maybe 70, 80 feet long. If that were engaged as just a merchant ship or maybe even a fishing vessel, you might have 10, 15 people on board operating it, sailing it from place to place. One of the things that pirate ships had were very large Cruise. It would not be uncommon for an 80-foot vessel to have as cl- maybe 100 people on board, 100 pirates, and they would accumulate more and more adherents either by forcing them to become pirates or accepting people who wanted to join the pirate crew because one of the ways in which pirates were able to intimidate merchant ships into uh, surrendering without a fight is they had an overwhelming force. And that was not only armaments, the cannons on board, but also the number of men who would be willing and able to fight. So the first thing to know is that if you were a recruit on a pirate ship, uh, it was very crowded. It was very smelly. Uh, The food was often uh, abominable, especially after the War of the Spanish Succession, when there were very few ports where they could go into and get new supplies. So they had to depend a lot on the ships that they overhauled for food, for clothes, and other basic things, sails and spars. So it was a tough existence. It was a smelly existence. The food wasn't of great quality. And perhaps the most troubling thing to the would-be pirate is they would soon realize that their expectation of riches were probably going to be dashed. Because one of the things that you see over and over again is the fact that very few pirate vessels and very few pirates during this time – again, I'm talking about after 1713 – very few pirates made a killing. Uh, A lot of their captures were relatively mundane merchant ships that might have had a small amount of money on board, some cloth, some beef, some hardtack, you know, uh, some ammunition. So these pirates who are like gamblers who go into a casino with visions of being the next Henry Avery or Henry Morgan and retiring with their riches are frustrated in their design. And so it probably is a very disc, a very uh, less than happy environment to be in unless you happen to be lucky enough to overhaul a ship that has a lot of money on board or has a lot of liquor on board. One of the things that pirates were known for is drinking heavily, and that is absolutely true. So if they captured a ship that had a bunch of pipes of wine or rum on board, the next few days would be an amazing bender on board the ship and everybody would be drunk. So from my perspective, I think being a writer is much better than being a pirate. It's much nicer (laughs) life. Uh, Some people may view that kind of life as something to 
emulate. But I think when people think about when, when people say, "Oh, wouldn't it be great to be a pirate?" or or they sort of romanticize the pirate life, they have this image of a pirate having a woman in every port, uh, you know, throwing the the, the trappings of the modern world or the, the world that they were a part of behind, going on the open ocean, doing what they want, going where they will, and making money and having a grand old time. That image does not comport with the reality of piracy at all. It was a fairly miserable existence uh, from my perspective, and it was often very short and brutish with a nod to Thomas Hobbes. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't mean to burst people's bubbles you know, about the mythology about pirates, but it wasn't like Johnny Depp <laughs> or <laughs> Captain Sparrow. <laughs> um, the, there might not be any surviving data on this, but did, uh, do you know if a lot of these pirates, uh, you know, after they got a taste of pirate life, if they then decided to, to get out? You know, there... There is not a lot of evidence of them getting in and getting out short of being hanged. You have to keep in mind there were over 400 or more than 400 pirates during this era who were hanged. And there were many, perhaps as many if not more, who were killed in battle or died in other ways. So uh, for many pirates, the only way out of the life was through death of one form or another. I have no doubt that there were a number of pirates who did retire or leave their ships. What happened to them? We largely don't know. Because you have to remember, these pirates came from the lower strata of society most often. Many of them were probably illiterate. They were not the kind of people that we write history about. I mean, even contemporaries, you know, wrote about their lives. But when we know about somebody today from history, it's often because that person was an important person in the society or did something uh, very notable. Many of the pirates, short of the captains, you know, would melt back into the into the into the background, and you would never hear from them again. So I can't tell you how many pirates actually jumped ship or left their ship with their lives and then went on and what they did, because there's very little evidence of that in, in the record. Right, well, like you said in the beginning, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Well, it's, well, think about it this way. I, I, you know, I'm not a, to really understand people's motivations and why they went into this way of life, you almost have to be a sociologist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You have to ask the same question mm -hmm. of why in today's society are there so many people who break the law in various ways. Or just look at, at people who rob, whether it's an ATM or a, a bank. They're pirates in a sense. What motivates people to do that? How did their lives tend to turn out? It, it's very similar. You know, a lot of people get caught or, uh, you know, it, it, it's not a glamorous way of life. You know, John Dillinger, we, we romanticize, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and John yeah, Dillinger. Yeah, that era, the gangster era. And, and Al Capone, you know, Al Capone, you know, he had, a, he had a nice life for a while, was very rich and sort of ran things, but he had a miserable end. And I think if you dig deeper into those mythologies about those, uh, you know, the, these these gangsters, we love to read about them. We love to watch movies about them. 
I don't imagine that many people who really understood what their lives were like would want to change places with them. And I think it's the same for for pirates. But there is some inherent fascination that humans have with the bad boys and girls of history, the people that do things that most normal people would never choose to do, but perhaps vicariously or some other motivation causes them to be fascinated by their lives. And I have no problem with that. I'm fascinated by the lives of pirates. And I've read books on Bonnie and Clyde, and I've watched the movies. And it is fascinating, but it's not fasc- It's not fascinating to me, I don't want to switch places with those people. It's almost like looking at a another species of human being. And why did they decide to do this? And what was that life like? Uh, it's it's a very interesting question. There, why do people love to read murder mysteries, which are essentially about a horrific act, but they're incredibly popular? So I'm not sure what the answer is, why we're motivated, why we rubberneck on the highway when there's an accident, why we like to sort of learn about these things. But it's certainly the case with pirates that we've romanticized them to a certain extent and uh, overlook the true horrific nature of their actual lives. Oh, well, that, I mean, that's true even in the, in the podcasting world. I mean, if you really want a big <laughs> podcast, do one on true crime, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and, and one thing that was interesting in the book is, is you talk about this romantic, um, romanticizing the pirates. Um, people were doing it when the pirates were still out on the seas. We've been Absolutely. doing this from the beginning. Well, Henry Avery is a good example. Here's Henry Avery. He disappears into the uh, Irish countryside. They don't know what happened to him. So there was a play that was created. On Drury Lane, down in London, they put on a play, The Successful Pirate, and they made up this whole story based on essentially what they thought was his life. I mean, it was totally made up, and the the plot was that Henry Avery, or this pirate, made a huge amount of money. He married the emperor's daughter, and he started his own kingdom in uh, on Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, which happened to be a redoubt or a, a, a hideout for pirates during this time. But Henry Avery d- definitely did not marry the, uh, the emperor's daughter, and he didn't settle down in Madagascar. And he didn't have a wonderful ever-after life that we know anything about. But that play was very popular. And there are other books and articles written at the time which did romanticize the pirates a little bit, perhaps the most famous of which is uh, uh, Captain Johnson's General History of the Pirates in 1724. We're not sure who this character was who wrote it. Uh, There's not a lot of information on him, but he wrote this huge volume on all the great pirates of the era, everybody from Blackbeard to Henry Avery to you know Steed Bonnet, and tells tales of their lives based on what he was able to get his hands on, including interviews, uh, he claims, but uh, trial transcripts, articles, other materials. And he tells very compelling stories, and every historian, including me, has used his book 
Uh, I used it very carefully and didn't always believe the stories he told, many of which were not uh, accurate or not reflected in the historical record. But he did present an image of these pirates as sort of swashbuckling uh, individuals uh, and, and and larger than life. So that added to the mythology. For example, Blackbeard, he said that Blackbeard had 14 wives. Uh, well, we have no record of him having uh, one wife. And they said that Blackbeard would go into battle with matches tied to the end of his hair, and he'd light those match on, matches on fire I, so that, that so that his face would be robed in smoke as he's going on to the ship to make him more fearsome than he actually was. Well, think about how ridiculous it is to go into <laughs> battle with flames shooting out from under your hat. That definitely did not happen. And in fact, everything we know about Blackbeard, he had a very short career, only about a year and a half, maybe two years long. And there are no records of him being violent to his victims, save for one case, because most of the time, Blackbeard, like other pirates of the day, were able to succeed through intimidation, and they didn't have to resort to force. It was the rare merchant captain and crew who would put their lives on the line when a pirate ship with 80 lusty pirates on board was bearing down on them and, you know, fight the pirates instead of just surrendering, giving over your goods, and then hopefully being let go to go on your way. Or if the pirate wanted your ship, the pirate might decide to just put all of you on the nearest piece of land. Um, you you said that you know Blackbeard has this really short career compared to how we kind of think of him, and and that's kind of true of the Golden Age of piracy. It's pretty short lived. It's only about yep. a decade um, in the uh, in, in piracy itself. You know the history of in your book is only a couple hundred years. Um, so yep. how did how did uh, England and the American colonies um, put a pretty quick end to it? Well, what happened is an alignment of interests, as I mentioned. In late 1600s, the colonies supported or at least welcomed pirates because they were providing something of value, and they created a counterbalance to the English government who wanted the colonists to crack down on pirates. After the War of the Spanish Succession, the pirates focused on a new quarry. Instead of going to the Indian Ocean or down to the Caribbean to attack Spanish, at this time, a lot of these pirates were attacking English ships, colonial ships. So the colonies suddenly were having their own ox gourd. Instead of benefiting from pirates' money, they were having their ships shipping and their ships attacked. And that was something they wanted to stop. England wanted to stop it because they were becoming a growing – they were a growing commercial empire. And it was not good to have your ships plundered by pirates. So – it was a combination of colonial resolve. They would capture pirates. They'd put them on trial. Many of those trials would end in mass convictions and mass hangings, which sent out a message. England was also hanging many pirates along the African coast and in London as well. So there was that clampdown uh, that was backed up by increased military presence. There were colonial ships and government warships that were sent over to the colonies that would engage with pirates and capture them or kill many of them. And that's part of the way that Blackbeard met his his end. They also gave out pardons to pirates. So if you came in and 
surrendered and gave up the life of being a pirate, you could get a king's pardon. And that brought in some of the pirates. So it was sort of a multi-pronged effort uh, and also diminishing returns. Pirates were not getting big scores. So the inducement to become a pirate, when you looked at the landscape, you realized you had military who was going to come out and look for you. If you were captured, you had a judicial system that was going to try you and likely hang you. And uh, then on top of that, you didn't have the prospect of great wealth. It was a uh, it was not the profession that you would necessarily choose to go into. And it sort of petered out by about 1726. But I want to make an important point. Piracy has been with us as long as people have been going into boats with anything of value. And piracy did not absolutely die in 1726. It was just the end of this one era, the golden age. There were still pirates after that, and in fact, there was another huge upswing in piracy in the late 1700s and early 1800s, both off the coasts of Tripoli and the Barbary Corsairs, as well mm-hmm. as in the Gulf of Mexico and in the Caribbean, where pirates like the Lafitte brothers, Jean Lafitte, and his, his brother and other pirates, Spanish pirates, uh, caused a huge amount of damage. And then piracy continues, as you know, until today. We have Somali pirates. We had a outbreak of piracy off Venezuela last year uh, because the country is in economic freefall. So as long as there are people on the ocean, in ships, that have things that are worth stealing, there will be pirates. All right. Well, uh, Eric, uh, this this has been awesome. This is a lot of fun to talk about. Um, if someone wants to pick up a copy of, of your book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, uh, and, and you talk about a lot more material, um, you know, the famous Captain Kidd, uh, you go on at, at length about Blackbeard, um, pirates that terrorized the, the North American uh, uh, seaboard, uh, Sam Bellamy. Uh, if someone wants to learn more, where can they go to find your book and where can they go to find out more about you and your work? Well, you can pretty much go to any, any bookstore online or brick and mortar uh, will either have the book or if they don't, they can order it. It's, uh, it's easy f- to obtain. And I know a lot of bookstores have it on their shelves and certainly all the online bookstores have it available and ready to purchase. If you want to find out more about Black Flags, Blue Waters, you can go to my website, which is just www ericjdolin.com, E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And if you go there, you can also see all 13 books that I've written. There are reviews for all the books. And for each of the books, including Black Flags, Blue Waters, I have excerpted the introduction. So you could read the introduction to the book and decide if it's something that you might want to purchase. I also have fun pictures there. I have videos. I put together book trailers for my different books. So you can get a lot of good information. You also can find out where I'm speaking. I tend to speak a lot right after a book comes out. So most of my talks for Black Flags, Blue Waters took place last year in the fall. I gave about 60 talks, but I still have about 10 or 15 talks scheduled throughout the balance of this year. So if you go to the events section on uh, my website, you can see where I'm speaking. Maybe I'm speaking near you. And if you want to get in touch and have me speak, you can always contact me through my website. And also I'll be updated.
anticipating it. I'm, I just, I'm handing in actually tomorrow my next book, which is on hurricanes. And uh, you, it'll be coming out in June of 2020, and I'll have a lot of information about that book on the website as well. All right. Excellent. Uh, sounds like a lot of great extra resources there. And uh, who knows, maybe, uh, maybe next year or so we might have you on the podcast again. That would be great. I'd, I'd really appreciate it. All right. Sounds wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eric, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. To be honest, I'm just happy I made it through without talking like a pirate. If you like today's topic and you want to learn a little bit more and you're interested in Eric's book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, look down in the show description in your podcast app. You'll find a link to get to his book. All right, that's it from me today. I look forward to sharing some history with you again in three weeks on July 9th.